Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. Welcome. Today, we're joined by Neil MacDonald, who is the chief executive of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprise Association, ISME. He's going to talk to us um, over the next 35 minutes or so about the small and medium-sized business sector in Ireland, the issues, how it's doing, etc. We have a lot of coverage in this country on the multinational contribution to the economy. I have always believed there's a lot less attention paid to the small and medium enterprise sector. And the statistics show, for example, that 99.8% of registered businesses in Ireland are categorized as SME accounting for around 67% of total employment in the economy. And of course, the regional and rural footprint of those businesses is really important in a country where there seems to be so much emphasis in theory placed on the importance of regional economic development. That's why Chris and myself believed it was important to get the voice of small business on to talk to us about the sector. Neil, could I start off by just asking you a little bit about ISME? What type of businesses do you represent? And more particularly, how do you differentiate yourselves from the Small Firms Association, which is part of IBEC? I suppose you you started off right at the the, the worst, but don't mention the war. Um, Our history, we we actually come out of of the SFA, uh, which is a a very good uh, trade association or um, within IBEC, and we're we're now talking back to the Federated Union of Employer days, um, and I, I suppose, and, and not to get too graphic about it, and, and this is you know we're talking back in 1993 in uh, the two recessions ago now is that we I I count uh, the movement of time now at my age in terms of uh, how many recessions we've clocked up, 
but this was at a time when when things were quite bad and um in in ireland and a lot of businesses felt uh restrained and constrained by the the messaging that could be done around say large financial institutions uh insurance institutions uh, and so on about the cost of a credit and the cost of insurance interestingly uh 27 years later um some of those are exactly the same issues um we're lobbying about today so i suppose the, the most important word our members and our national council would use is independent uh yes we can have big firms in membership, but they only get one vote. So someone uh, who uh, comes to a meeting running a, a multinational bank um, has uh, the same voting power as someone who uh, runs a three hair, uh, three chair hairdresser. That, that's the way we work. And that's the essential independence of ISBI. We represent all sectors. Uh, we call ourselves multi-sectoral, that would across all the business types, about 60% micro-businesses, that's below 10, about 30% small, that's 10 to 50, and about 10% uh, medium to mid-cap. Across those sectors, we'd be about 50% services, uh, and those services would d- divvy out rough, roughly equally between white-collar professional services and and blue-collar man in van. And I suppose now you're talking kind of grey-collar IT, you know, that that line has blurred quite substantially in in IT services. So so that's what our membership would look like. Neil, from what you've just said, and of course from what I know about the SME sector, it is the engine of the Irish economy. And yet all of the attention, all of the press and the media are all over the the high tech sector, the multinationals. But really, looking, particularly looking forward, given what we know about multinational taxation and the, the growth that we've had in, in that, those industries, it, the growth going forward can't come from, from them. It's got to come from you guys. Why do you think both historically and in, in particular the present day, you guys simply don't get the government, political and media attention that your sheer size deserves. I, I think you would have to look back into our economic history. I, I speak about this quite a bit because uh, I'm, I'm speaking to a British man like you, Chris, and our sunny uplands were meant to arrive in, in 1922 when we became independent. But uh, actually, our economy continued to contract and our population continued to decline, albeit a, a lot slower than it did previously. And, and realistically, uh, these were economic choices. There, there was, you know, protectionism became an economic auto da fe for, for our political class to the point where our population actually went below 3 million in the late 1950s. And, and a great former Secretary General, arguably, arguably the greatest Secretary General in finance we've had, T.K. Whitaker, uh, actually said to the then Taoiseach, we should consider rolling up our tent and rejoining uh, the United Kingdom if this is the way we're going to run the economy. At that point, two critical decisions were made. One was to remove protectionism and reduce, uh, take tariffs out. And the other one was to open the economy to onshoring of multinational companies. And you, and you can actually watch the census graph change in 1961 from that point. Yes, the joining the EEC as it was uh, then with the UK back in 73 was very important for Ireland, but you can actually see 
that we started, the population started to grow from the point of, of that program um, afterwards. And while a lot of people spend their time sort of knocking the multinational sector, we always observe that they're some of the best customers of our businesses, our, our IT people, service businesses. I Before, unfortunately, the pandemic, I had one really interesting fruit distributor whose only customers were the fine companies down in Silicon Docks. Uh, and all the fruit he was selling was was being given out free. So we, uh, there's a huge amount of interdependence on that sector. I, I suppose the negative observation we would make would not be about the, the multinationals themselves. It would be that our our tax and our and our fiscal policies are really structured and written around them. And such has been the success of the multinationals that we actually have not sort of right-sized our, our, our tax code and our legislation to reflect the fact that, nine, as, as you say, 98% of businesses are actually small and medium enterprises and they're, they're not able to take advantage of large, really important parts of the tax code, like the R&D tax credits and the uh, Keep the uh, Key Employee Engagement Program and SARP, that uh, special program for, for foreign employees. All of these things have been written with multinationals in mind, not with the SME sector, despite the fact that SMEs employ three quarters of, of people in the economy. Neil, I'm really interested in getting your assessment of you know, the current health of the SME sector in Ireland and, and what you see as the big challenges that need to be addressed. But I guess the difficulty in asking you that question at the moment is that we have the COVID environment where all the rules have been torn up and it's, it's really hard to gauge anything very much. But I'd like to ask if you take yourself back to February 2020 before COVID hit, how at that stage did you regard the health of the SME sector and what did you would you have identified at that stage as the big challenges facing the sector? It is funny because uh, the, the first thing is we, we were the first of the trade associations to just tell the membership. And, and it, looking back on it now, I, I remember we, we did a press release on it and I sat down with our HR people and said, we, we need to be warning businesses about this, but without frightening. It just said, you know, sort of asinine stuff like, don't get too worried, but this thing is, is going to come. But from our own fiscal and, and tax positioning in our own pre-budgets, and, you know, everyone gets it wrong, we kind of called the top in the economy in our pre-budget submission in 2019 and in 2018, just on the basis of what we could see uh, in terms of government spending, house prices and all that sort of thing. The one favour the pandemic has done for us is, is, is whatever underlying weaknesses were in the economy, we, we've, we've got that out of the way now. You are right to say it's hard to see what's happening yet. And one thing I would say about all the trade associations, I don't think the most accurate information on on what on, on company or business mortality is going to come from the trade associations simply because of three quarters of a million businesses in Ireland, I suspect substantially less than a third of them are involved in trade associations and they're probably a bit more mature. And and secondly, like I know for a fact that Many of ISME's members are also members of trade verticals. So they'll be a member of ISME, but they'll also be a member of the Restaurants Association, the Hotels Federation. And they're possibly, I, I know some of them are members of three associations. They're in their local chamber. So they are businesses that understand the importance of 
being together and lobbying together. So I suspect that a lot of them are going to be, some of them are going to be less badly affected than those smaller micros out there. The central bank put quite scary suggestions out there during the week about what business mortality would look like. We, we just say, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but for every 1% business mortality, you're looking at somewhere between two and two and a half thousand businesses going under with somewhere less than seven or eight jobs in each one of those. And each one of those businesses also, we've surveyed our members a couple of times about, you know, you know, how much do you owe other businesses? And a reasonably consistent figure coming out was 76,000 euro. So we've extrapolated from from that figure and and figures we also did as part of the local jobs alliance with you, Jim, and with the um, SME Recovery Ireland, that there's somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 billion of intercompany SME debt that, you know, is potentially going to go bad in this. And that has to land on somebody's balance sheet where, where it actually lands, of course, uh, is to some extent in the map of the gods, but it isn't going to go away. And and that was one of the reasons why we were out the door immediately in, in um, April last year, asking that we would have an affordable examinership regime, which we called examinership light and now has been called summary rescue. But these are things we really need to get over the line before the state supports taper because then I think we are going to see real problems start to develop. Neil, what, what about the, the legacy issues that are going to be at the other end of this for small businesses? And I'm talking about, you know, revenue liabilities that have been parked. I'm talking about commercial rates. I'm talking about bank interest that's been put on hold in many cases, rents, rent arrears, all that stuff. How, how do you actually quantify that for your members? Is it a massive, massive issue? It, it's very hard to make, you know, huge, big sweeping generalizations. But if I say in the last crash, it was the creditors that moved on businesses, if that makes sense, between, between the banks and so on. And a lot of businesses were insolvent and they went under. Since then, under Solvency 1 and Solvency 2, the banks, uh, as you know, have, have built up. They are very seriously reserved now. The, the other thing that happened to creditors in the meantime was Ireland certainly smartened up its bankruptcy regime. And for private individuals, we got a, a, a personal insolvency service that has been to a greater or lesser degree. At least creditors have their head around a debtor that can't pay. So when we pushed... It is remarkable looking back over the history of ISME when I look at my predecessor, Mark Fielding, was actually looking to get a cheap examinership in 2012 after the last one. And I think it's fair to say that that would have been substantially opposed by the creditors regime. That opposition has gone away. And indeed, the, the Banking and Payments Federation specifically uh, endorsed our proposal, which was fantastic last year when they did, because they're, they're, they're no longer afraid of a, a, a debtor who's willing to enter into a restructuring process. You know, a half a loaf is better than no bread. But that, that's on that side. The, the state and the revenue are being accommodative. So we are looking at, you know, three years of warehousing at affordable rates. And a lot of businesses are availing of that. And that, that is as it should be. I, I suppose one thing we would say is that the sh- state should give consideration, perhaps, to complete forgiveness, and in in some in some of those areas, that that is something that is worth considering. 
as part of the summary rescue process. But what, how I would substantially differ this crash from, from the last one is that this time, and we say this to the government the whole time, this time it's going to be the SMEs moving on each other because, as I said before, someone's going to catch this mess on their balance sheet. And if you're owed 76 grand by someone else, you know, you are, you know, you're legally bound as a company director to try and recover that. So where the chips finally fall is is going to create pain. And you did specifically mention uh, legacy leases, upward only rents. Yes, we are seeing that as an area of real difficulty where institutional landlords are, for, for example, some of the people we understand are being least helpful in addressing the problems we have at the minute. So Yes, leases and rents are just, you know, it's given the fact that, you know, we've done a year of huge number of office workers working at home on a force majeure basis. We're not all going to stay at home. We all know that. Um, But at the same time, you have seen leases, for example, in Grafton Street been substantially marked down. And people are simply going to have to recognise that there will be changes and people who have built in valuations of leases and so on who have asset values reflecting pre-COVID are, are going to have to change those assumptions post-COVID. Uh, you, you have made a lot of noise about the insurance industry over the last, well, since you came into ISME. Uh, are you making progress? Uh, I, I think it's very unfortunate. First of all, I mean, the, the process by which this this whole thing of looking at damages was effectively outsourced to the judiciary we have real constitutional concerns about that that that's actually a breach of the law making powers of the legislature that has been given to the judiciary it's quite extraordinary that they did this i mean one of our own lawyers did say to us look if this new damages regime is appealed by someone either on the basis that they're too high or they're too low what judge is is going to hear the case apparently 80 Five percent of of the judges were in on this. I I, I just think you know it it seems to have been a, a serious error of judgment to do it this way. Uh, in our view, this is a legislative function, and the legislature already caps damages in a number of areas, such as fatalities, uh, unfair dismissal, dismissal for protected disclosures, and so on. But in any case, we have somewhere in the region of a fifty percent decline in general damages. Uh, for minor awards. And from our point of view, you know, we're, we're not seeing any any movement in this. In our view, that's not a sufficient decline in damages to take, a, to, to remove the economic incentive to sue for something that isn't really, you know, mild whiplash is not recognized as a medical diagnosis. If you, if you talk to neurosurgeons and, and, and whatnot, they, they did do some useful stuff in regularizing things that had not been. So, for example, uh, post-traumatic stress is is now there. But I, I think the values they have appended to that at the minor end, up to €10,000, is going to mean an awful lot of us are going to appear in court suffering from post-traumatic stress. And while it's not going to bother me, or I, perhaps if I'm unkind, Chris, yeah, you, you can now get up to €22,000 uh, in damages for a bad hairdo. So uh, we, we have some sectors that are quite concerned about this direction of travel, but we'll have to wait and see how that comes. But that's just damages. The, the fact is that 
our court system as it functions now, the, the manner in which justice is administered in the country is extremely pro-plaintiff and anti-defendant. You know, if you as a business defend a slip, trip or fall or accident in your premises and you win, you're not going to get your costs off the plaintiff. Uh, you're going you're, you're gonna to have to pay your own costs. And, you, you know, our, our, our system does not appear to recognize the fact that, you know, we have professional plaintiffs operating in this country. They're taking multiple claims. We, we have lawyers who specialize in this business. Uh, and, you know, it's, this is societally damaging. We, we have people who, even local authorities who are refusing to open playgrounds because they go, you know what, we had 10 claims in that that last year we're not going to do it we also have as you know just the issue of fees is our, our legal fees are astronomically high and that's not coming from me that's the former mr justice peter kelly who says you have to be a pauper or a millionaire to get justice in this country we have defamation laws that have been criticized by the european court of human rights we have an availing of those defamation laws you know we've Justin Timberlake and Tony Robbins flying in to sue people in Ireland. And, and nobody seems to go, that's interesting. Why has he got on a plane from the United States to sue somebody here? Not, nobody appears to critically appraise that and say, this is a significant problem. And while the journalists think that defamation is a real problem for them, the reality of who the real victims of our defamation laws are, we have retail businesses publicans and restaurants well i know that the, the latter have been closed now being sued for defamation is a weekly occurrence for many of these people the settlement is in the seven to ten thousand euro range i i've one small security company that looks after i won't name uh, some of the stores but it, it's convenience retail and and this business has 118 live defamation claims against them and yet we find no progress on this. We, we went back to our all independence. We got gained independence in 1922. We don't have a perjury statute on the books. We've been lobbying for this for four years. Now we're promised we're going to see it this year. So th there's a whole swathe of things where, and especially in areas of white collar crime, which SMEs tend to be the victim of a great deal. SME owners do not see the state as vindicating their rights and they actually see the state vindicating the rights of people who are trying to extort money from them through the legal system. So it's, it's not a nice place to be. And I deal with a lot of really angry people who run business premises or tourist businesses renting bicycles and things like that and just can't afford to get insurance. It's, it's really, really disappointing. But we've made some, a tiny bit of progress, Jim, but not nearly as much as we need to. On the banking sphere, we've seen since uh, the beginning of the year, Bank of Ireland announcing a lot of branch closures. AIB is already going through that process. We've seen Ulster Bank announce that it's exiting the Irish market over the next few years. And of course, last week, then we had the KBC announcement. And I know KBC is not focused on the SME sector, but Ulster Bank very much. So how do you see the banking landscape at the moment? And what do you think the solution is to create a competitive landscape, and I think particularly a banking landscape that looks after small businesses who would typically have most difficulty in accessing credit in the system. Yeah, I, I, it's really, really shocking, Jim. As, we have, as we've described it lately, we're, we're moving from a 
a potential duopoly to an actual duopoly among our members, just, you know, so you know, I mean, Bank of Ireland and AIB would have roughly 80% of our SME customers. Ulster would have 11 to 14%. KBC were less than 1%, but the issue is the removal of that competition uh, from the sector just means that you don't have any, you, you know, it's a seller's market. And if you don't like it, you know, you really don't have anywhere to go. The cost, we're still, in my opinion, Jim, we're still looking at the outworkings of the previous uh, crisis and the central bank rules around that in, in terms of solvency, in, in terms of capital reserves. They're inappropriate for the sort of lending that takes place in in this in in our uh, state, especially in terms of housing and the, the sort of levels of deposits you have to have. So we need to kind of realize that there is a cost to compliance. We don't have. There's certainly no one queuing up at the door to enter the market. We have to be realistic and understand the size of our economy is about the size of that of Greater Manchester. And while we're not saying that you fill it compliance rules and have a free-for-all what we are saying is we have to be realistic and a lot of our SMEs do deal with cash so hospitality businesses cleaning fast food hotels uh, pubs and and cash is now on its own becoming a significant burden so the standard rate for cash now among businesses is 80 euro per thousand lodged that's that's nearly one percent charge just for using cash so I just had a call today in respect of uh, credit card charges, cross-border credit card charges that are increasing. So it kind of doesn't matter whether you're in cash or electronic, just the cost of moving cash around the place is becoming extraordinary. And on its own, it's sucking one and a half percent of working capital out of businesses. So, you, you know, you have to, you, you know, you have to add that. Uh, before you start making a profit. So look, we're not in a good place from a banking point of view. The quick and dirty solutions are going to have to involve something around the post office or the credit union network. And in terms of a third banking force, whether it's PTSB or or do we set up a new sort of ACC 2.0? Do we float off the SBCI as as a as an entity with its own access to market, which a lot a lot of people think is a very good idea. So there are solutions, but we actually need a bit of action now because, you know, this has has already gone too far. What do you think of the, the German community banking model, Sparkas? And I know government has rejected that on numerous occasions over the last few years. Um, I can't figure out why. I think it's it's what we should be trying to aspire to here. What do you think and what is the resistance? I don't understand, other than the fact that they don't have a network, although I understand there is already, there is one Sparkast in Dublin, as I understand. So there's no reason, you know, that that couldn't be capitalised and expanded. I suspect, though, that the fastest way to sort of retail banking equivalent, though, is likely just in terms of capitalisation to be through the credit union network first. But you know, we're obviously approached by all of these parties on a regular basis, and that's why ISME doesn't, you know, doesn't lobby on, on behalf of post offices or, or credit unions or or Sparkassum. But there there is no reason why at least one of them could not be used as as a retail banking support. I saw you quoted very recently as saying that intellectually we see no Whitaker on the horizon to challenge the new orthodoxy. 
And the longer this goes on unchallenged, the bigger will be the bill to pass on to the kids. What do you mean by that? You know, we, we came into this pandemic with a with I think the second highest per capita national debt in the world uh, after the Japanese. I could be Jim, you're, you'll correct me if I'm wrong there. The, but the critical difference between the Japanese and ourselves is that theirs is de- denominated in their own currency and most of it is held by themselves. So if the if the Japs go bust, it's, uh, you know, it's Japanese couples that will take the pain. Our, our debt is denominated in, in a, a hard currency over which we've no monetary control. And coming into this, we were looking at four. I remember distinctly when I was writing, just discussing the ISMI pre-budget submission over uh, the dinner table at, at home. And my 14 and 13 year old daughters, when I said, you, you owe 43,000 euro. Uh, and they were like, God, that's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, who's going to pay that? And uh, my wife and I said, well, you are, because we're not going to be paying it. And our solution to this problem, now we're not knocking the fiscal spend now because we the government has to be counter-cyclical, but there doesn't seem to be anyone saying, well, you know, we need to get we need to get counter-cyclical when we come out of the far side of this. And we need to be looking at revenue raising measures and spending reduction measures that get us within our means. I mean, whatever I, you guys know far better than I do what's going to happen in the United States with, with you know, Biden's package and whether that's sustainable in the long run, who knows? But for us, our solution cannot just to be, keep borrowing in a hard currency. And someone is going to have to pay it back. We're managing our, our refinancing and our debt servicing now because interest rates have literally never been lower in our history. And that, again, cannot be assumed into the future. So these are all, the reason I made the Whitaker comparison is back in 1958, when he was confronted with these unsustainable realities, he actually said it to the T-shirt, this is it, this just can't go on. And uh, my observation is, is, is to say that this may be happening in behind closed doors in Marion uh, Street, but Whitaker had published his findings before he wrote the uh, the program that uh, the Dáil endorsed in 1958. He was out publicly saying this is not sustainable, and we do not hear, uh, quite frankly, any anyone in the Department of Finance or the Department of Public Expenditure saying this is unsustainable. And quite frankly, we see the converse. We see people who are saying we can commit to long-term current account deficits. And, uh, you know, unless, you know, Ireland wins the global equivalent of euro millions, we just don't see where the where the money to pay for all this is going to come from, unless we take very hard decisions on taxation. And, you know, uh, we, and at the same time, we face the possibility that our corporate uh, tax bill may decline. And we don't seem to be dealing with any of this. And, and that was the point I was trying to make there, Jim. Chris and myself in a podcast a few weeks ago were discussing a solidarity tax and Chris is in favour. And I told him it was a barmy idea. And then I got a, an indirect message from yourself saying that Ismay actually is in favour of a solidarity tax. What would you like to see? 
Again, I, I, I suspect most of our members would actually uh, agree with you, Jim. But the reality of it is that a surcharge, a marginal charge, has existed for uh, how, quite how this is justified. But, but I said it in, a, in an Oireachtas committee and caused some surprise among deputies that didn't realise this had been said. You know, self-employed workers earning more than €100,000 a year pay a, a 3% surcharge on their USC. And when we asked some nice people from the Department of Finance why that was, um, we were told that's because self-employed people can fiddle their taxes. And I, I said this in the Oireachtas, and, and people were really surprised that someone said it. But it's the fact it was said in front of a... And uh, by the way, I'm certainly not knocking the person who say it, said it because at least they had the courage to say it rather than the kind of sneaking regarders who do this and, and, and don't tell you to your face what's going on. But despite us lobbying since the imposition of this nearly 10 years ago, if it's established, it's established. So we're saying, well, you know, that's a great idea, folks, because the revenue tells us we'll make an extra 300 million a year if we impose that. So we've said all PAYE workers making more than uh, 100 grand should pay 3% uh, USD surcharge or pay the marginal 43% uh, PAYE rate. One way or the other, it's an extra 300 million that we could all do with, but it would also reimpose equity. And we think that's really important. We're back to the Whitaker comment. Would Whitaker decide that people who set up businesses and gave employment should be rewarded with a surcharge that PAYE workers uh, don't pay? Not on your deli. Uh, and that's the sort of person that we're looking for with. Uh, um, a, a, a bit of uh, iron in the spine that's willing to say if if this is good enough for them it's good enough for us and we need the money so let's get on with it in the last few days you've published a report called the job kill zone could you summarize it in a couple of minutes as as briefly as you can every year we have these uh really sterile discussions with uh politicians and social justice people and, and all these saying you know the solution to all ills in society is to bid up the wage rate and we have the second highest national minimum wage after luxembourg uh, and we actually do have in relative terms a high wage economy uh, it, it, I, i'm the first to acknowledge that it's not across the board a high wage economy in the small business sector but that just is an acknowledgement that there's a, a, a significant amount of service businesses in the SME sector that are not present in the multinational sector. However, when you actually look at what is causing low work intensity households and income poverty, you know, these problems are really significant. They're not going to be addressed by 10 cents on the minimum wage. And these are people who pay, believe it or not, up to 50% marginal deductions uh, on every euro they make, between extra euro they make between 18,000 and, and 20,000 euros a year. A lot of people don't believe that. But they also face real cliff edges on medical care, on child support if they're on job seekers allowance, or on access to social housing if they make more than 25,000 euros a year down the country. 25,000 euros a year is just four and a half grand above the national minimum wage. So we're saying to the government, rather than trying to outsource this problem of poor people to 
uh, a sector where where these people don't want to work because you're making it, them better off by not working. Would you, for God's sake, look at your social insurance system, at your social housing system and your medical care system and allow them to earn extra money, to seek promotion, to do overtime without losing these, without losing these social benefits. And that's what it's all about. Thanks, Neil. One thing that strikes me listening to your fascinating discussion of over a whole range of topics, economic history, current economic policy, why we've arrived at the state that we're at, goes back to my original question to you, is that why the importance of the SME sector isn't recognised by official island, if you like. Um, because it strikes me that the only way in which we are going to get any decent economic growth looking forward is if there's the structure of that growth is, is very different to how it's been over the last couple of decades. And somehow or other, the challenge facing you is that you've got to make uh, all of these points that you're making um, time and time again. And I know that's not easy. And the equally difficult task is that you've got to try and make the SME sector sexy. You've got to try and make the media in particular pay attention to the agenda that you've just set out. And that's going to be a, a tough exercise for you. So in a way, this is not a question. It's more unsolicited advice, which is that you've got to get this front and center from the insurance through to economic strategy, through to the tax and welfare system. These are all incredibly important details. Um, but if we don't get these things right, um, then I think that this, you know, very large sector of the economy is going to continue to face the headwinds that you've just described. And so th th there's clearly a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, Chris. I would say ju just in, in, in wrap, I suspect one of the one of the downsides of having all these very sexy tech multinationals is that people think that traditional business can't generate really bright left field ideas and and i'd say a couple of things back to that you know you think of you know the taxi business but the taxi business spawned uber uh, and that has just uh, run uh, amazing through the world whether you like that business model or not um uh, airlines, regional airlines, which were a, a really declining uh, business globally, uh, when Southwest of the, in the US, and then we we a, a small well-known company put in a plane in Waterford and started flying over and back to the UK, and it's now one of the largest airlines in the world. But we we have to have a regard for the fact that we need to scale our domestic businesses, and just by way of uh, a final contrast, and I know you can't do a read across on all these things, but uh, Israel has about uh, not quite double our population, um, and it has about 400 listed businesses on its stock exchange. Um, at roughly half their population, we have something like 25. Now, there, I, I appreciate we're in a much busier commercial patch of the world with one of the biggest stock exchanges of the world in the world next door to us but there's no reason that a lot more irish companies should not get big enough to list i agree wholeheartedly one of the you talked about the early 1960s and the changes that whitaker wrought um one of my favorite economic statistics from ireland to try and illustrate just how much things have changed in that 50 55 year period since then is that at that time um, over half of Irish exports were live cattle. And so we've come a long way in a very short space of time, which 
tells us that we could do it again if we wanted to. Absolutely. I, I think we should wrap it up there, guys. Thank you very much, Neil. Much appreciated from both of us. And um, no doubt we will be talking to you again. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks Chris. Thanks, Neil. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.